Good morning. Thank you guys for joining us today. We're continuing our study through the book of John. Uh, We're looking at verses 1 through 15 this morning in the book of uh, John chapter 6. And so if you guys would follow along with me, we're going to look at these, uh, these verses together. John 6, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples... Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I ask you guys to pray with me one more time. Father, we are thankful for this morning and time that we can spend uh, just reading your word together. And God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak truth to us this morning. That God, you would reveal, God, the truth of your character and your nature to us. So Father, we ask those things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've titled this morning's sermon, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? Will the real Jesus please stand up? In the, in the 50s, the 1950s, there was a popular game show that came on, um, and it's been recreated, I think, several times since then. This game show is called To Tell the Truth. And the idea behind this game show is you would have a, a group of panelists or judges, and there were usually celebrity judges who would come in, and in front of these judges, they would march out three individual people. And those three individual people would all introduce themselves. They would say, my name is John Smith. And the next person would stand there and say, hello, my name is John Smith. And the next person would do the same thing. Hello, my name is John Smith. And then the host would read a small narration or a, a, a bibliography or a biography, if you will, of something unique about the real John Smith's life. So it may have been a job that he had that was unique or an experience that he he had that was unique. And so only one of the three was the real John Smith. And the panelists would then ask all three of these individuals questions. And then at the end, they would vote on who they think is the real John Smith based on their answers to the questions that they gave. And so what, what was interesting was that there was always a twist at the end. Because there was always there was a panelist who you know never failed. He always knew he he knew he had him pegged. He knew, I know like person A, 
that's John Smith. Has to be. And then it turns out, person C was John Smith. They had it wrong all along. So there's always a twist to it. And so in this passage we look at today, there's a group of people who think they have Jesus figured out. They think they know what's going on here. They say, finally, the prophet that we've waited for is here. And they think they know what that means, but in reality, they don't know what that means. And so really quick, just background on this story. Uh, This is the only miracle outside of the resurrection, the only miracle that Jesus performed that's, uh, that's present in all four Gospels. So this is the only one that made it into all four accounts. It's one of the most familiar stories that, that we've probably heard. Uh, I was talking to my wife this week about, uh, she asked, what are you teaching on? And I said, well, it's Jesus feeding 5,000. She said, oh, yeah, we do that. And uh, she's over the kids' ministry. She said, oh, yeah, we do that in, in the kids' ministry. I said, well, yeah, that's, it's probably one of the most familiar stories that, uh, that is in the Bible. People who grew up in church and people who didn't grow up in church, they, they all seem to at least be somewhat familiar with this story, Jesus feeding the 5,000. And so there's a temptation sometimes with, with familiarity to check out and, and act like there's nothing new here. So I want to challenge us this morning to stay engaged in the Scripture, to stay engaged in what God's Spirit is speaking to us as we take a look at this passage today. It's also uh, the, the most massive, just in sheer number, when it comes to the miracles that Jesus did. Most of the time, Jesus' miracles, if you go back and look through Scripture, most of them are, are smaller crowds. Sometimes just individuals. This particular miracle, the scripture tells us there are 5,000 men. And naturally, where, where there are men, there will be women. And where there are men and women, naturally, there will be children. So most scholars believe that this crowd, if you're talking about 5,000 men, most scholars believe that there was likely a crowd of between twenty and 25,000 people. Between twenty and 25,000 people. And people didn't just watch a miracle happen. They, they partook in the miracle. They, they ate the miracle, if you will. And so there's a uniqueness here in that this is a creative miracle versus a restorative miracle. So many of the miracles that Jesus did, he would restore someone's sight. He would restore their ability to walk. He would restore their, their sanity and, and, and the, or their spiritual health if they were possessed by a demon. Many of them were restored to where he would take something that was and restore it back to how it should be. This miracle is unique in the sense that Jesus took from nothing and created from a few pieces of bread and fish and out of that fed 20 to 25,000 people. The only other miracle that's that something like it would be when Jesus turned water into wine. And it's interesting and, and unique that in that, in those two miracles, Jesus reminds us of his blood and his body in creating wine and creating bread. And there's a reason for it, so I think that we should pay attention. As Jesus says, hey, I'm not just making bread and wine here for the fun of it. I'm telling you who I am. I'm showing you who I am. And so the big idea this morning is who is the real Jesus? We're going to answer that question from this passage. What do we learn about who Jesus is? Who is the real Jesus? 
And so the first thing we see is that the real Jesus is compassionate. The real Jesus is compassionate. As we mentioned, this, this miracle is recorded in every gospel. And so for, for a brief moment, I want to I push Paul's and John, and I want to take a look at a passage uh, from the book of Mark. In Mark 6, 31 through 34, you see a, another account of the same event. Mark 6, 31 through 34 says, And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of him. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now I don't know if you heard it in that passage, but Jesus was actually trying to get away from the crowds. Like he was, he was fleeing the crowds. He said to his disciples, hey, we haven't even really had a chance to eat, so let's hop in this boat and go across this sea so we can get away from these people so that, so that we can just have a little bit of rest. So Jesus is trying to get away from the crowds. He's trying to escape the crowds. And when he ends up on the other side of the shore, he realizes there's, there's another crowd waiting for him. Um, I, I'm the parent to young children, and if you've been a parent to young children, you know uh, at least a small snippet of maybe how Jesus felt in the sense that it's just impossible to find any privacy in your life. So you think the bathroom is safe? It's not safe. It's, you go to the bathroom and, and you sit down and you think, oh, I got five minutes of, of quiet and peace, and it's not 30 seconds later, someone's knocking on that door. Daddy, what are you doing? Using the bathroom, son. Uh, so you, you get a, an idea of just kind of how Jesus felt. I don't know if Jesus ever rolled his eyes, but you know, this is one of those moments where it's just kind of like, oh, I'm just, just, trying to get a, just trying to get some rest. Just trying to get away for a moment. And so what, let's consider, what, you know, what could Jesus have done? I mean, he could have just disappeared, right? I mean, he, he's God. He could snap his fingers and suddenly be somewhere else and be somewhere different. He could have just disappeared. He could have sent the crowds away. He could have said, hey guys, I, I know that you have needs and I know that you're curious. We just left a big crowd. We're tired and we're hungry. And you know, come back tomorrow, same time, same place. He could have sent them away. He could have become angry. I think that would be a natural response that, that you or I likely would have had. Can I please just get some rest? But Jesus showed compassion. And Scripture is full of examples that point to and call out the compassion of the Lord, the compassion of the Christ. And, and if you're ever curious, you can just look through the book of Psalms and do just a word study on that word compassion. And you'll see it come up over and over. Psalm 51 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Psalm 86, But you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Psalm 103, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Psalm 116, the Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. Psalm 119, let your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. And finally, Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. 
slow to anger, rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. So what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us that the real Jesus is compassionate? One, I want to recognize that the word compassion, it comes from a Latin word, uh, compassionist, which means, literally means to suffer with. To suffer with. So there's a difference, you see, between compassion and another word that sometimes people may use interchangeably, but compassion and pity. Those are two different things. Pity looks at someone and says, oh, I, I feel sorry for that person. Compassion looks at someone and says, I, I feel sorry for that person. How can I enter into their suffering with them and walk beside them? And so an easy example uh, in Memphis, because if you live in Memphis at all, you routinely see homeless people on the side of the road and we drive by them every day. Pity looks at that person and says, I hope they find something to eat today. Pity looks at that person and says, I hope they make it into a shelter tonight. Compassion looks at that person and stops the car and says, what do you need How can I walk beside you in your suffering? How can I enter into your suffering with you? Can I I put you up in a shelter tonight? Can I provide a meal? How can I love you and serve you and walk beside you through your suffering? So we see Jesus showing compassion, being moved to action. And we see that in a small scale in this story, but let's look at Jesus showing compassion in a larger scale. Why is Jesus even here at this time on this earth? Because a God who just shows pity can do that from heaven. He can look at the earth, he can look at the people, his creation, and say, man, they really blew it. I feel sorry for those guys, but they made bad choices and they live with the consequences. A God who shows pity didn't have to be here. A God that shows compassion is moved to action. And he sends himself in the form of Jesus to intercede on our behalf. A God who shows compassion chooses to go, to suffer with his people, to rescue and redeem. So on a micro scale, Jesus showed compassion by multiplying fish and bread and by feeding people when they were hungry and didn't have anywhere else to go. But on a macro scale, Jesus showed compassion by entering into our suffering, by being born. The God of the universe who created everything we see was born in human flesh in a suffering and broken world. Philippians 2, 6-11 says about Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. By by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The real Jesus is compassionate, entering into our suffering, not willing to stand aside and be a, just a, an observer, but he comes to us in our time of need. 
So the real Jesus is compassionate. Another thing we see here, another thing that we can learn as we answer that question, who is the real Jesus? The real Jesus will test our faith. The real Jesus will test our faith. Let's look at verses 5 through 9 one more time. It says, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Let's be honest. Tests aren't very fun. Tests aren't very fun. Um, I, I don't know if anyone's ever gotten excited about taking a test. Like, you might get excited that the test is over after you take the test, but I, I, don't, I don't think, and maybe there's a subgroup of you guys out there that do get excited about it, but I don't think many people get excited about actually taking the test. And I, I've been out of school for a while, so it's been a while since, since I've taken a, a, a real test. I did have to take a test last year, so I work in the uh, commercial truck industry, and as part of my job, I was required to, uh, to obtain a CDL, or a commercial driver's license. And nowadays, because they're putting more and more automatic transmissions in big trucks, so now you can get two types of licenses. You can, you can take a test in an automatic vehicle, uh, which is obviously a little bit easier, but then with your CDL, you can only operate an automatic vehicle. Or you can take a test in a, in a standard manual transmission, um, and if you do that, then you can operate any vehicle. And so, uh, lucky me, my job required that we take it in a, in a standard manual transmission. And I don't know if you've ever driven um, a 10-speed uh, tractor or, uh, or a dump truck, a triaxle dump truck that's rated for over 80,000 pounds. Uh, but it's, it's a little different than driving uh, my Toyota. It's just a little different. And uh, I didn't grow up driving a, you know, a manual transmission at all. And so, I had somewhat of a learning curve just trying to figure out, okay, here's the clutch here's the brake, here's the, here's the accelerator pedal. And so it, it was a big learning curve for me. And I knew that I had to take this test, and we went ahead and scheduled the test because I tend to work best with a deadline. So we scheduled it out, and I knew, okay, I've got this much time to prepare. And there's a written portion of it that you go, and, and that, that part was easier because you can just it's just head knowledge, so you can study it and learn it and pass the test. But then the other portion of the CDL test is you have to actually go do a driving test. And it's not just a driving test, it's also a, a pre-trip inspection test. So you have to be able to operate the vehicle. You also have to know everything about the vehicle and be able to do an inspection of it prior to getting in the vehicle and operating it. And uh, it's, it's just very thorough. And it took a lot of time to learn all the different components. It took a lot of time to learn uh, how, to, how to drive it well without stalling at a red light or rolling backwards if you're on a hill it just took a lot of time and experience. So tests aren't very fun. I, I was grateful when that test was over, and I wasn't looking forward to it. I was looking forward to it to be over. <laughs> so tests aren't very fun. So this idea that the real Jesus will test our faith, and Scripture's very clear in this, uh, that Jesus asked him this to, to test him. That's not a real exciting part of maybe who Jesus is, but, but I want to take a little bit of a closer look and see why Jesus chose to do this and what we can learn from it. So Jesus purposely placed Philip in a circumstance that challenged his idea of who Jesus was. 
Because the question was not, Philip, how much faith do you have? Because Scripture is really clear. I mean, we just need faith the size of a mustard seed, right? We can move mountains. So it's, it's not the level of faith that's being tested here. The question is, Philip, where is your faith? Where do you place your faith? He might as well have asked Philip, Philip, who do you say that I am? Because we're faced with this circumstance that seems insurmountable. Yet you're standing next to me, the Son of God, the creator of all. Like the one who was there at the beginning when the universe was spoken into creation. And and Philip, you're, you're worried about how much money it would take to buy some bread. And then we still wouldn't be able to feed all these people. Philip, who do you think that I am? Who do you say that I am? Where is your faith? Is it in the natural, created world that's around you? Or is it in the supernatural creator who is standing with you? Where is your faith? Do you see Jesus as the Messiah, as the creator, the one who was there in the beginning? Go back to John chapter 1. We studied it a little while ago. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The one who was there from the beginning. Where do we place our faith? And if you haven't already experienced this truth, one day you will. Just like Philip, Jesus will one day test your faith as well. And that will look very different for every individual. And you may experience that through the loss of a loved one, maybe a parent or a child or a family member. You may experience through the loss of a job or a career or the loss of a marriage or a relationship. Some of you are experiencing it now. With COVID-19, we've lost our idea of normal. Every time we go somewhere, I went to Target yesterday, and we, we were standing in line outside of Target waiting to get in. And uh, Caitlin and I both made just the comment, isn't this weird? Like, this is just bizarre. Like, this, this, everything just came to a halt, and nothing is normal anymore. COVID-19 has, has destroyed, for many of us, our sense of safety and security and health. And it answers our question for us, where is our faith placed? Because if our faith is placed in, in, doctor, in doctors and government leaders, we are bound to be disappointed. Because as best I can tell, no one has great answers for us. You can look at all different sources and different news articles and everybody's saying different things. The reality is nobody really knows when or if normal is ever coming back. So do we place our faith in those places in the hope that things will be normal again or do we place our faith in Jesus and the one who is over all, who is sovereign over this world and creation and in the one where we place our eternal hope? Where do you turn in times that challenge you? Job, who experienced an incredible amount of loss has a a famous verse, a famous quote, and he simply said, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Where do we place our faith? 
Because the real Jesus, eventually, your faith will be tested. Do you place it in him? We also see the real Jesus provides. So he's compassionate. The real Jesus will test our faith, and the real Jesus provides. Let's look at verses 10 through 13. Verses 10 through 13. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Jesus provides. And we see him provide in this passage in, in several ways. So in providing the gift of a meal of bread to people who are hungry, Jesus foreshadows the gift of Christ himself. So other miracles showed his power and his healing work. This miracle shows that Jesus is the bread of life. That Jesus is the bread of life. And I want to connect the dots of Scripture just a little bit here. So go with me, if you will, all the way back to the Old Testament times. If you remember verse 4 in this passage, it mentioned the Passover was at hand. So there's already, during the season of Passover, there's a a season of heightened expectations for what God is one day going to do. And this all stems from the Exodus. So go back and read the book of Exodus. God rescued his people from slavery to the Egyptians. He sent to them a, a prophet, a man named Moses, to lead them out of slavery. He, he led them to a land that he had promised their forefathers. And that rescue was accompanied by many signs and wonders and miracles that went along with it. And the most crucial of those was the, was the Passover. And you can go back and read this in Exodus 12, but the Passover was when God passed through Egypt in judgment striking down every firstborn amongst the, Egyptian, amongst the Egyptians, but he passed over the Israelites. He passed over the Israelites. And that was then followed by a period of, of testing and trial as the Israelite nation wandered through the desert, through the wilderness, before being brought to the promised land. And in that season, in that time, God provided certain key events that enabled Israel to look back and remember the character of God as rescuer. The character of God as rescuer, as the provider. One of those is the Passover feast. So the Passover feast was an an annual festival that was instituted to ensure that God's people remembered the night of their rescue. That God's people remembered the night of their rescue. While they were in the wilderness, God provided food for his people through, uh, through something called manna. It's basically bread that fell out of heaven every day. And they got to eat it, and they were sustained by it. And it would spoil the next day, so they had to, they had to rely on God day to day for their provision. The miraculous provision of bread that sustained them. And God also made a promise in Deuteronomy 18 Verses 15 through 18, God promised Israel a new prophet who would be like Moses, 
who would lead them as Moses had done. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. If you remember, jumping back to John, the people, when Jesus performed this miracle, they said, well, here he is. This is the prophet we've been waiting on. This is the passage that they're referring to. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, Moses speaking, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, but he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So Jesus, in his provision, didn't just provide food on this day. It was a foreshadowing to Jesus providing himself. Jesus is doing something in the natural realm that is pointing to the spiritual realm, and people don't make that connection. And and if you follow along the life of Jesus, you see that happens pretty often, right? So if you remember the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, Right? Jesus told Nicodemus, hey, uh, you, you know, it's not just about following rules, you've got to be born again. And what does Nicodemus say? How do I get back in my mom's womb? It's kind of a weird thing to say. Well, there's the lady at the well. Jesus says, if you had asked me, I would have given you living water. Her response is basically, Jesus, you, you don't even have a bucket. Where, where, are, you, where are you getting this water? Jesus continually speaking in spiritual terms, doing things and and using um, analogies in the natural realm that point to spiritual truths, and the people fail to see it. Jesus provides not just a meal, he provides himself. And the meal was a foreshadow, pointing to Jesus as the bread of life. So Jesus provides the real Jesus. The last thing we see here, the real Jesus is king. The real Jesus is king, but not in the way that the people wanted. Not in the way the people wanted. Verse 14 through 15, finishing up this passage, says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the people failed to understand that Jesus alone can satisfy man's deepest needs. They looked for someone who could provide for their physical needs, and they accepted him as the prophet and wanted to make him king. And it's understandable, because sometimes I think in our, in our current culture, it's hard for us to, to, to move out of what we know to be familiar and try to place ourselves uh, in the footsteps of someone who was alive 2,000 years ago. Okay, so let's think about it for a minute. Um, 2,000 years ago, Jesus is going around healing people, right? I mean, he, he drew massive crowds because he was healing people. Thousands of years, um, 2,000 years ago, so this is thousands of years before disease and and viruses would even begin to be diagnosed. 
So we take for granted our our modern healthcare system in some ways, but unless you had a a physical or mechanical issue that could be seen and addressed and fixed, you had very little hope during this time. There were no prescription medicines. There were no x-rays. There were no pathology reports. If you got sick, you either got better or you didn't. Those were your options. There's very little that was in your control. It wasn't run to the doctor, get a prescription, take some medicine, and you're better three days later. Very little of your physical health was really in your control. They had very little knowledge of what was going on inside their bodies. Then Jesus shows up, and all these people who have been sick for years all of a sudden are well. I mean, can you imagine the draw? And not only is he healing people, now he's just he's spitting out food from nothing. What about food? The battle for food 2,000 years ago was a lifelong battle. It was a lifelong battle. They didn't have supermarkets that you could just run to, pick up a meal, throw something together. They didn't have prepackaged foods or refrigerators. You didn't run through a drive through on your way home from work. Every meal represented work. Work that happened prior to just preparing the meal. Someone had to acquire food. It had to be cleaned and prepared or planted and grown and harvested. And then you had to do it all again. Nothing about it was easy or simple. It was a challenge. And and Jesus shows up just multiplying food. Hey, we just need a single piece of bread. Jesus can be 25,000 people. Can you imagine the draw that Jesus had? I mean, he, he basically solved all of their problems that they faced as a society. He can make us well, and he can give us food. Let's make him king. I mean, it makes sense. You can understand their mindset. Here's a guy who can heal our bodies and make food from nothing. I mean, he, he kind of turned their world into just a little utopian society. We have everything we need. So they said, let's make him our king. Now, at first glance, that, that doesn't seem so bad. I mean, Jesus is king, right? I mean, that's, that's one of the things we're learning here. Jesus is king. And yes, Jesus is king. But not in the political manner that people wanted. They wanted someone to rescue them, not only from disease and hunger. They wanted, people to re- they wanted someone to rescue them from the rule and the reign of Rome that they were under at the time. They wanted that person to be Jesus, to restore the nation of Israel as a political power in the region. They didn't want a king over the entire universe. They wanted a king over their universe. And what is Jesus' response to that? Jesus' response is he withdrew. I have a quote here. This is from a sermon by John Piper, but I just want to share this quote to you, with you. It says, Why did Jesus withdraw? Talking about this passage. Because the enthusiasm these people have is not for who he really is. This is so important for our day and for your life. People can have a great enthusiasm for Jesus, but the Jesus they're excited about is not the real biblical Jesus. 
It may be a morally exemplary Jesus or a socialist Jesus or a capitalist Jesus or an anti-Semitic Jesus or a white racist Jesus or a revolutionary liberationist Jesus or a countercultural cool Jesus, but not the whole Jesus who, in the end, gives his life a ransom for sinners. And if your enthusiasm for Jesus is for a Jesus that doesn't exist, your enthusiasm is no honor to the real Jesus. And he will leave you and go into the mountain, which is exactly what Jesus does here. So while Jesus is king, he was not the king they were looking for. So a question that that we can ask is, what Jesus are you looking for? What Jesus are you looking for? Are you looking for a Jesus that just fits into your box of who you hope the Savior will be? Are you looking for a Jesus that fits your political agenda? Are you looking for right-wing Jesus or left-wing Jesus? Are you looking for Jesus who just restores the the health and security of this nation as, as we go through this crisis? What Jesus are you looking for? And is it the true Jesus? Is it the real Jesus? Because the real Jesus is compassionate and he will test our faith. He provides for us and he is king, but not king over the small kingdoms that we've created. He's king over the universe. And he is king, more importantly, over eternity. So do you worship the real Jesus? Listen, this chapter starts out with twenty to 25,000 people following, literally chasing Jesus. And I don't want to get too far ahead in this passage because we're going to continue to teach through chapter 6. But by the end of this chapter, things change pretty drastically. Jesus spends the rest of this chapter explaining how he is the bread of life. And along with that, there are some hard teachings. There are some hard teachings. And if you just fast forward to the end, verses 66 through 69 of this same chapter, again, starts out with 25,000 people chasing Jesus. By the end of the chapter, verse 66 says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So despite the miracles and the healings, he wasn't who the crowd wanted him to be. And they thought they had him pegged. They thought they knew this is the one we've waited for. And over the course of one chapter, 25,000 people decide this isn't who we want. Do you worship the real Jesus? That's a question for us this morning. And only you can answer that question. We can see who the real Jesus is as we look at God's word and we see him revealed here. But only you know your biases. Only you know what box you're trying to get Jesus to fit into. And like that quote we looked at earlier said, if you're trying to worship a Jesus who isn't the real Jesus, you bring no honor to his name. And just like Jesus fled that group, 
he will flee and go into the mountain because that's not the real Jesus. Do you worship the real Jesus? I'm going to close with, with this. There's a, a song um, written by Todd Agnew, who's a, a familiar name to a lot of us, especially here in Memphis. But he wrote a song um, a while ago called My Jesus. My Jesus. And I just want to share the lyrics with you. The lyrics go like this. Which Jesus do you follow? Which Jesus do you serve? If Ephesians says to imitate Christ, then why do you look so much like the world? Because my Jesus bled and died. He spent his time with thieves and liars. He loved the poor and the cost of the arrogant. So which one do you want to be? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Or do we pray to be blessed with the wealth of this land? Blessed are they that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Or do we ache for another taste of this world of shifting sand? Because my Jesus bled and died for my sins. He spent his time with thieves and sluts and liars. He loved the poor and accosted the rich. So which one do you want to be? Who is it that you follow? The picture of the American dream? If Jesus was here, would you walk right by on the other side or fall down and worship at his holy feet? Pretty blue eyes and curly brown hair and a clear complexion is how you see him as he dies for your sins. But the word says he was battered and scarred, or did you miss that part? Sometimes I doubt we'd recognize him because my Jesus bled and died. He spent his time with thieves and the least of these. He loved the poor and accosted the comfortable. So which one do you want to be? Because my Jesus would never be accepted in my church. The blood and dirt on his feet would stain the carpet, but he reaches for the hurting and despised the proud. I think he'd prefer Beale Street to the stained glass crowd. And I know that he could hear me if I cry out loud. I want to be like my Jesus. If you would, pray with me. Father, we are thankful, uh, God, for your word. God, I'm thankful that we see a clear picture, God, in your word of who you are. God, we see a clear picture of the real Jesus. It's not a mystery, God, that we have to try to guess. God, you reveal yourself to us. And Father, if we're honest, oftentimes we worship an idea of who we want you to be. And God, we try to fit you into a box that goes along with our ideas of what we think is right. And God, often, God, in that pursuit, we create idols out of pieces of who you are. So, Father, forgive us for, for that. God, may we repent, God, of, of turning pieces of your character into idols in our lives. God, give us grace that's required, God, to understand who you truly are. God, give us the grace that's required to accept you, God, for who you are. Father, we are grateful, God, that you are 
a God who shows compassion, that God, you came into this world, that God, you chose to suffer with us instead of just showing pity from a distance. God, you chose to come. So God, help us to to further wrap our minds around and understand that truth. And God, may that truth draw our hearts, God, closer to yourself. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.